Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Kara Mangone, what a pleasure to have you today on the Investing in Integrity podcast. How are you doing and where are you calling in from? Thank you, Ross. It's great to be here. I'm calling in from my offices at Goldman Sachs in New York, downtown at 200 West Street. How are things at Goldman this week? How's life? Things are good. Life is good. It's busy. The weather's changing, which is always good. My little kids are happy about. Makes my commute a little bit easier. It's a busy time for the firm and, and excited to dive in. Likewise, likewise. So can you begin by telling us your story from the beginning? And how you ended up getting interested in finance back in college? So finance for me was actually a little bit of a winding road. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and I was first introduced to finance actually through my father. So my father worked for Wilmington Trust for many years early in his career. And then when I was probably elementary school, middle school, he decided to go out on his own. And I remember a period he would work from home before he had another office And he ran a sort of financial advisory wealth management business practice. And I remember sitting in his office. I was a bookworm. I used to love to read. And I remember I would go into his office at like the sunny spot and I would sit there. He always had CNBC on. And I would sit there sort of watching the CNBC screen and listening. And he would always be on calls. And I didn't, there was a lot I didn't really understand in terms of what he was covering, but it was really clear to me every time I sat there, that he was helping people in some form. Like people were calling him and they had challenges and he was helping them. And so that just sort of stuck with me in sort of the ether. I really didn't understand what finance was, but I knew that my father worked in it and I knew that he was doing something to solve problems. You would have thought that might be a catalyst for me to then go and direct my career that way, but it wasn't in part because I just followed what I really liked naturally. And a lot of that was reading and writing and liberal arts. And so I entered Boston College where I did undergrad, a declared English major, Italian minor, and I enjoyed the curriculum a lot. It took me a few years to realize, and I had this moment during the interview processes actually for internships where I would leave the interviews that I did that were a little bit more business focused. I interviewed for a lot of different things, journalism, kind of lots of different things. And the interviews that I left that were more business focused, I was so energized by. And so I decided it was a sign And I think some of that was just the dynamic nature of the conversations, the energy of individuals that I was speaking with, the environment that they were describing. I decided to sort of start my career in finance. I ended up doing investment banking for my internship and then started full-time at Goldman Sachs in investment banking. And here we are. I would have never predicted that I would be in finance and have a career for almost 15 years at this point in finance, but I I really can't imagine a better industry and role and purview for who I am and what I like to do. And so here we are. 
Amazing. Thank you for the story. What an interesting story. And dad, if you're listening, thank you so much for inspiring one of the leading change makers in finance to the career she now has. Kara, I'm curious, having spent your entire career at Goldman Sachs, you've had a very rapid ascent into a senior position now as the head of the sustainable finance group at Goldman, overseeing the delivery of a $750 billion commitment to sustainability. Can you walk us through what, if I may call your meteoric rise in the firm, and also talk about your role today and what you do? Thank you, Ross. Well, you're very kind. I would describe it more as incremental progress over time, but I appreciate it. I started, as I mentioned, my career actually during the financial crisis. So I started at Goldman Sachs in 2008 in investment banking. And I started on a team that was responsible for advising companies who were facing hostile M&A and shareholder activism. And that was a really interesting way to start my career, especially during the financial crisis, because there was a tremendous amount of change for these companies. There was a lot of volatility, of course, in the stock market. And, you know, I really took two things from that experience. One was the importance of stakeholder relationships, which was really interesting. In a lot of these situations, right, it's a very, can sort of play out very publicly in a proxy fight, for example. And it comes down to what your relationships are as a company with different shareholders and how much confidence they have in your business and business strategy. And the second reflection that I had from that experience was the importance of having a durable, long-term, sustainable strategy with KPIs and clear, transparent communication in the market that your shareholders could kind of track and follow. And the importance of that in driving long-term value creation, you can have a great business. And Ross, you know this from your own experiences in your career, I'm sure you can have a great business, but it's so important to be able to tell and communicate that story really clearly in the market. And so It was a really terrific way to start my career. I was sort of in the trenches, learning a ton in spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations, but really interesting to be able to take kind of these learnings at such an early point in my career. And those informed what I did next, which was I spent a pretty long stint, almost 10 years in investor relations here at Goldman Sachs. And part of what I was asked to do when I moved into that team and just, you know, for folks maybe who are less familiar, right, that's part of sitting in a, a public company or working with the, the company's shareholders, right? So you're working with either their bondholders, with their equity stockholders. You're also working with credit rating agencies or other important stakeholders. What I was responsible for was helping our shareholders better understand our business and strategy and also helping to really improve our disclosure to the world on what we were doing from a sustainability perspective. So I wore a few different hats on that team, but over time really ended up building a lot of relationships with our shareholders. Going back to what I was doing in investment banking, which was very stakeholder focused, I ended up building a lot of stakeholder relationships for the firm that were wide ranging. It could be a faith-based investor, socially responsible investor, value investor, research analyst. It could be an ESG rater. And that was a really interesting dynamic, too, because it gave you a sense of the magnitude of the financial system, of the opportunity, and also my understanding of what we do as a business. 
which was really interesting and important because you really have to be able to articulate to the street everything we do and how we create value. And that's something that I know, Ross, I think you had a similar reflection in your own career journey, which you should share, which I think was like at a certain point, acknowledging kind of the scale of opportunity in financial markets. I had a similar sort of reflection at that point in my career as well. And then after that, I know we'll talk about it, but I went on to to ultimately be part of our sustainable finance efforts commercially in 2019 when we launched this team. Kara, first of all, you're the first podcast guest I've ever had that's invited me to talk and (laughs) turned a question to me. I'm happy to oblige that. But first, I want to thank you for sharing your story within Goldman Sachs and the different roles and functions that you've held. It's interesting because when you look at a lot of very senior leaders' resumes, you often see investor relations there. You know, what is a CEO, in addition to setting, you know, vision, strategy, culture, and managing the entire enterprise for performance and results, one of their largest jobs is investor relations, right? And being able to manage healthy and productive relationships, trusting, transparent, honest relationships with their investors. And so I think it's really cool to hear sort of the different paths that you've you've taken and the different sort of sub-careers within your career you've had already at Goldman and what drew you to sustainable finance. To oblige your invitation, I think what you're referring to is what I often share whenever I'm talking about scholars of finance. When people ask me, why did I start scholars of finance? The simple answer is when you look at the world around us, the problems that caused so much suffering and adversity and hardship, where there are 4 billion people living on less than $10 a day, when climate change very clearly is real. We have the most catastrophic weather events we've ever had. Even the names for them are getting more and more catastrophic sounding. We had an atmospheric river here in California recently, you know, a bomb cyclone not too long ago, you know, in other parts of the US. When you see this all happening, you have to ask yourself, How do we solve these problems? Ultimately, it requires an enormous amount of human effort. And human effort can be directed in three ways. There is, you can persuade someone, right? You can influence someone with reason, with logic, right? On the other end of the spectrum, you can force someone to do something, right? You can make them. And somewhere in the middle is you can incentivize them, right? Using capital, the promise or the availability of a better life You can incentivize people to engage in certain economic activities, to build certain products and services. And so we ask ourselves, if money is the incentive, how much are these problems going to cost and be who's got enough money to do it? The UN has 17 sustainable development goals. Just one of them, carbon net neutrality, BCG a few years ago estimated it's going to cost at least 90 to $150 trillion over at least 30 years. And that's just one of 17 problems. So the order of magnitude of capital required here is hundreds of trillions, maybe quadrillions of dollars of investment required to solve all the world's most pressing problems for us to have a sustainable, prosperous, inclusive future. Nonprofits can't raise that kind of money at speed and scale. Governments are increasingly beholden to capital. Even in the US, McCoochin versus the FEC, Citizens United versus the FEC, Any individual or corporation can give an unlimited amount of money to influence our political system. And we know that money is not distributed evenly. So again, where is the money? 80% of it is in the private sector in the US, in business and finance. And when you look at businesses, CEOs are simply employees who report to boards of directors who oversee the enterprise on behalf of the shareholders and investors who own it. (laughs) 
So what we tell our students and I tell friends is if you want to change the world, you have to change finance. The financial system allocating well over 100 trillion US dollars per year right now at our current run rate are the ones who are allocating capital, right? If that money is going towards tobacco companies or if that money is going towards health food companies, if that money is going towards new products and services that exacerbate poverty or going into education and fintech to alleviate poverty. And all of that represents an enormous investment opportunity, right? And so I think seeing what you're doing at the Sustainable Finance Group at Goldman with a $750 billion commitment to sustainability, it's just incredible. With that said, I'd love to turn it back to you. Thank you for obliging. Uh, of course, of course. I was timid at first. I was like, I should, should I skip this? Should I move on? I think it's so interesting and it's, an, it's important to share because I remember in our first conversation, this was one of the things that we talked about, which was I mentioned, I didn't imagine I was destined for finance either, but I do think, you know, the perch and purview you have and the ability to support such a large ecosystem through, you know, the work we do with clients, our clients, our corporates, our companies, our small companies, pre-IPO companies, institutional investors, managing wealth on behalf of their fiduciaries. It's a really large ecosystem. The opportunity is one that we take really seriously and it's tremendous. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. That goes into a bunch of questions I'd love to ask about your climate strategy, about sustainable finance at GS. Let's dive right into one of the most pointed questions. One of the biggest sort of points of controversy you hear among the investor community is you know, we have a obligation to maximize shareholder value and profits and anything around environment or sustainability, it's all a distraction. And this is, you know, hindering profit maximization. This goes against all the reasons why Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize, you know. And so I would love to hear your perspective on the real investment opportunity that you see in sustainable finance and sustainability, how you and the firm think about that. Yeah. Absolutely. And maybe I'll just start with a step back on what does our approach look like at the firm? And then where do we see the opportunities and challenges? I mentioned in 2019, I was asked to to help form the Sustainable Finance Group, which I now lead here in the executive office. And that's really to support cross-divisionally our approach to sustainable finance. And the way that we really think about that portfolio here is really three things. The first is sustainable finance for us and the most meaningful impact that we're going to have in the real economy in supporting a more sustainable economy over time. It's really going to be first and foremost through the work with our clients. So what we do in our businesses, right? That could be advising clients. It could be providing capital. It could be providing financing. It could be investing. It could be working with them on risk management solutions, But that's first and foremost where we'll have the most meaningful impact. And so that's the big focus of our strategy. And we have a $750 billion sustainable finance target. As you mentioned, we're about 55% of the way there after only a few years. So we've made tremendous progress on behalf of our clients. The second piece is we are a public company. We talked about the investor relations perspective and, and the important relationship between as a public company, you're owned by shareholders and the governance component. So the second piece is as a public company, how do we think about managing our firm? 
in terms of our own human capital and people and our practices, in terms of the way that we report and explain our business and our strategy to the world, as well as the sustainability reporting we do, stakeholder engagement, the way that we manage our operational missions as a firm. So that's the second piece. There's a third piece, which is there's still a lot of gaps to address. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, kind of working with others in the ecosystem those could be nonprofits, NGOs, or development banks to figure out how we can address gaps that exist. And that could be, you know, lack of momentum in climate finance and emerging markets. That could be quality of climate data out in the market. So there's a lot of different areas that, that we're working with where we leverage both the work that we do with clients and then our own experience as a public company engaging in sustainability. So I think that answers the first part of your question in terms of like, where do we see the opportunity and what does the approach look like? And then I think in terms of some of the challenges that you mentioned, like how do CEOs or CIOs think about the opportunity here and, and also think about balancing with the challenge? The first thing I would say is there's often not this significant tension that I think we sometimes perceive to be, which is between profitability and sustainability. So often the conversation that we're having with clients is much more around how sustainability can be a driver of profitability. And that could be by driving revenues. So it could be a growth opportunity for the firm in terms of, you know, where the company is investing, sustainable food and agriculture, clean energy. These are all commercially viable solutions, high returning solutions where there's a lot of opportunity in the market. It could also be a way that you manage operating efficiency, for example. So a way that you manage costs, improve margins for your company. If you improve energy efficiency, that can be great for the planet. It also can be really good for your business. And then the third is, is managing risk. So, you know, is climate a risk that you're considering in your business and how are you accounting for that or adjusting for that? So I think that, yes, there is complexity around what this looks like in terms of implementation. And so these are financial decisions that need to be made. It's really important when you think about sustainable finance that we think about this in a commercially viable way. Right. Because ultimately, that's what's going to be lasting and rewarded by shareholders. So I do think that's a really important component. And a great example I often give for Goldman Sachs is we are a very active investor in clean energy and energy storage and, you know, lots of different low carbon solutions. We also spend a lot of time with fossil fuel clients. We advise them on acquisitions. We work with them on their decarbonization strategies. We need those companies to be able to provide energy across the world in the ecosystem today. We have more than 800 million people globally who do not have access to electricity today. So it is really important that in the financial system, we're not abandoning sectors, but working across the ecosystem to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. It's so interesting that you get to advise on their strategy, their decarbonization strategy. Do you view energy transition and climate investing as an end-all be-all with no investment in hydrocarbon? Or do you think a hydrocarbon future is inevitable even with energy transition investment? Well, I think one of the things that is changing, and I think it's becoming a more pragmatic conversation, which is really important in light of in part Russia, Ukraine, but there is a 
gap and our research shows us that there's more than a trillion dollar gap between energy demand and energy supply today. And so I think what that tells you is we, we do need hydrocarbons because we do have this significant gap, but I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. So if you look at, you mentioned estimates of the amount of capital required to deliver on global climate goals, a lot of different estimates, most estimates are three to five trillion in capital a year, where most research firms will estimate that capital going into is the hardest to abate sectors that are the most carbon intensive today. And so I think the conversation that I was referencing is there's a lot of folks in the market saying, okay, I want to be able as an investor to participate in energy transition, not sit outside of energy transition. And if participating in energy transition means that it's going to involve a lot of the most active companies in you know, fossil fuel sector and aviation, auto manufacturing, industrial sectors. If these are the companies that are really investing most heavily in decarbonization in the future, then it's important to have ESG frameworks and investment opportunities that allow me to allocate capital, not sort of against the most, away from the most carbon intensive companies today, but actually into the companies that are making a lot of investment for the future. So be a little bit more forward leaning, if you will, and measuring progress over time versus measuring where we are as a world today. Um, because you get into a lot of challenges around affordability. If, does energy get a lot more expensive if you have frameworks that just involve sort of distancing capital from those parts of the economy in the near term? That segues perfectly into another question that I wanted to ask about measurement. One of my dear friends, Elizabeth Seeger, who's now at the International Sustainability Standards Board, right, at ISSB, trying to unify the world's standards that we use to measure sustainability. Her and I talk about this a lot, about some of the challenges and opportunities just with measurement coalescing around a shared set of standards globally. How do you measure sustainability initiatives at Goldman Sachs? What metrics are you using? What standards are you using? How do you think about measurement today? And how do you expect that to evolve? So we think a lot about measurement. We have an overarching commitment, as I mentioned, with this, which is a $750 billion sustainable finance commitment by 2030. Uh, and we're about $425 billion of the way there so far. So a lot of progress being made. And if you look at our sustainability reporting, you will see a lot of different kind of other important metrics, how we manage operational emissions, for example. And that, that disclosure is, is absolutely important, right? Because it shows you ambition is definitely an important element, but in our view, execution is actually the most important. And so being able to share progress on that to our clients, to stakeholders is really important. I think there's another part in my mind to measurement, which gets a little bit less focus in the market, but I actually think, especially from the finance purview, is really important, which is think of this as a market which is changing and evolving all the time. Many years ago, this used to be green bond. We had just green bonds, and then we had social bonds, and we had sustainability bonds, and now we have KPI-linked bonds, which are bonds that are users of a really interesting concept, general corporate proceeds, so not ring-fenced, but the ability to deliver on sustainability-related targets actually impacts the performance of the bonds. So the financing sort of tied to KPIs. And those will probably continue to innovate. We're seeing things like transition bonds, for example. So 
One of the areas that we spend a lot of time on, particularly within my team in the sustainable finance group, is thinking about what are the tools that don't exist in the market today and how can we incubate those with clients? And often, actually, it's a client coming to us and saying, hey, you know, I've reduced a lot of the emissions in the core of my organization, but there's a residual amount. And I'm not sure if I want to purchase offsets for those. I know that's an option. Do you have another idea of way that I could do this? And we worked with, you know, a big global company on this where we developed a nature-based opportunities fund to for them to invest in nature instead of purchase offsets. Just one example. So I think it's important to measure that as well. The numeric is really helpful because you can see the progress, but there's a lot of other important metrics that we can use as well, particularly in the financial services sector to demonstrate the innovation that's playing an important role in the development of these markets and therefore the momentum and capital uh, that can be driven behind these opportunities. I appreciate you mentioning offsets. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the carbon offsets market? Where do you think we're getting it right? Where do you think we're collectively falling short? How do you think it needs to evolve? It's a great question. It is a hard topic for a few reasons. I mean, one is there is certainly a lot of opportunity to getting the market right in the sense that it's very difficult for companies to fully decarbonize their business today without any kind of additional tools that they can use, whether that's, again, investing in in nature and one of the opportunities I just talked about, or whether that is purchasing offsets. Offsets are also underlined by projects, which are really helpful in terms of scaling climate solutions, in terms of protecting nature, removing carbon from the atmosphere. And in many instances, these projects are actually based in emerging markets which is an area that needs a lot of funding. The challenge is really in the execution because it's still a pretty nascent market. I think in terms of volumes, you're in like probably the high single digit billions, probably like six, seven billion of annual volume and carbon credits versus the compliance markets, which are closer to probably 800 billion annually. So it's still a really small market, but I think there is a tremendous amount of opportunity, it's just going to take some time to iron out some of the challenges. Interesting. That's I want to build on that, that it'll take some time to iron out some of the challenges with carbon offsets. The carbon offset market is still a relatively novel innovation in sustainable finance. Right? You earlier mentioned you know, green bonds, sustainability bonds, and the evolution of even fixed income products. Would love to hear your thoughts on looking into the future, what you think the biggest trends and innovations in sustainable finance will be over the next decades. In the you know decade that I've been involved in our sustainable finance efforts, there's already been a tremendous amount of change. And I'll give you a few buckets, but I think the first one is looking at different forms of financing and capital. So you made a comment earlier in the conversation, Ross, around sort of the opportunity in the private sector, which is true. There's tremendous opportunity in the private sector. But I think important to note that public sector capital is playing a really powerful role in energy transition and global sustainability goals right now. And I think we'll continue, we'll probably only increase in terms of the opportunity. I think the great thing we're seeing is it doesn't just have to be public sector or private sector. It can actually be a mix between the two. And one of the interesting things that 
we've spent time on the past few years is how you can take the pooling of that capital and blending of that capital and drive additional impact through that. I'll give you a great example, which is an innovation facility that we launched with Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Asian Development Bank. It's a climate finance innovation fund. It's specifically focused on parts of the world where climate finance has not accelerated as quickly in developed markets. One example of that is South and Southeast Asia. So that's where we've started in this effort. And what we did is we put in a combined kind of grant capital from Goldman Sachs and Bloomberg Philanthropies, acknowledging that it's been harder for those economies to get a lot of private sector capital into these climate finance projects. And then the Asian Development Bank is the facilitator of the fund and also helps to provide a credit guarantee. And what that allows you to do is our funding can then improve the return profile of the projects, which can then crowd in additional private sector funding. And that can be very catalytic. One of the projects that we did is funding sustainable transportation in Vietnam. And what we've been able to do is mobilize our capital 44 times. So we've invested in projects which are going to put the first electric bus fleet and national EV charging infrastructure basically online in Vietnam. And we've been able to, I know Ross is cheering on the Zoom, and we're able to- <laughs> I'm fist pumping. For everyone listening on audio, I'm over here like pumping my fist in excitement for, for Kara's win here. You're so, you're so kind. Well, look, it's really a win for the partnership. And I just think that- It's just a model. There's amazing work being done across the world. Lots of different companies. We're just one of them that's been involved in this particular example that I'm giving, but there there are so many. And I do think it's just a great example of one of the things that I would imagine is going to keep evolving and changing in this market is a scale up of public kind of private financing structures. I think the second is we're spending a lot of time on nature. It's really an emerging area. I gave one example a little bit earlier, but I think financing in nature is going to be a really important component of the dialogue on sustainable finance over time. And then I think the third is there's so much changing in the metrics reporting regulatory space. So that I think is going to drive you know, a lot of evolution and change. Many years ago, when I first started working on our sustainability reporting, it was all voluntary. We chose what we wanted to put out and how we wanted to put it out. We were very careful in the metrics that we had and closely review and monitor those. We took that obligation very seriously, but it's a changing world. So we will actually do mandatory climate reporting in the UK for the first time this year. There'll be a lot of other regulatory requirements coming through. You're going to see bigger um, cross-cutting initiatives within organizations because we have a lot more people involved in the reporting and the quality of the data and the checking of the data. Hopefully that will help to drive additional focus and interest and capital flows into these themes and hopefully won't just be a ton of pumping out disclosure. I'm really happy to hear that. I think this focus on, you mentioning, you're saying it's not just pumping out disclosures. I think that's really useful. We just on our last podcast episode had Robin John. He's the CEO, founder of Eventide Asset Management. What started as a faith-based investment firm is now a values-based asset manager. They've built a number of mutual funds that they have very rigorously screened against their, their values. And he was saying, I think a decade or so ago, I remember doing some research and there was a company in one of our portfolios today that is curing lung cancer. And it had a lower ESG score 
than Philip Morris, which was creating lung cancer because Philip Morris had diversity on their board. They disclosed their water usage. They had all these disclosures that got them lots of ESG points. And he was like, I cannot believe that a company creating lung cancer gets a higher ESG rating than a company actually curing it. And so his perspective was, you know, we need to measure the investment worthiness and the sustainability of products and services, you know, the businesses that deliver them based on the end results for the end user, for the customer, for the host communities, right? Where those products and services are built and delivered and used for employees, for, for stakeholders, for this whole notion of stakeholder capitalism, I think really emerged from that conversation. How do you think about that evolution, this evolution from sort of maximize profits at all costs in the short term, shareholder capitalism to let's maximize profits in the long term with you know minimal societally borne costs? The metrics conversation is one that's happening real time. And that's an interesting example you're giving. I mean, one that that I often refer to is if you look historically at the representation of metals companies, for example, in ESG indices, most ESG indices tend to be close to 50% underweight relative to the traditional benchmark of metals companies. These are inputs for low carbon solutions. So we need these. Some of this, just it's just going to take time, right? Where again, we're kind of building the plane while we're flying it. And so I think it's it's normal and natural to have these evolutions, but I think that's one that we're closely tracking as well. And I think there's a lot of really well-intentioned work in the markets, in the ecosystem to evolve those frameworks so that they are more forward-leaning. They're not penalizing companies for which industry per se they're in, but actually the investments that they're making in the future. Like we talked about, this is not a, you know, developing more sustainable economies over time. This is not going to take three years. It's not going to take 13, it's going to take decades. And so that's going to be an incredible transformation. It's going to take a lot of time. And so really ensuring that we're incentivizing, a word that you love, that we're incentivizing the right behavior kind of in markets and with capital. And I think being really responsible stewards is an important concept. I mean, I talked about this a little bit in the conversation we had on my journey here at the firm. But one of the things that has certainly been a constant as I think about this portfolio and the opportunity we have at Goldman Sachs is very much this frame of stewardship, right? We are stewards of our clients' capital. We provide advice. And that's something that I certainly take very seriously in the opportunity we have here. And it is important that we get it right and that the result is not making energy really expensive, but actually that what we're doing is we're making energy reliable and clean and affordable. And that's just going to get all those things right. It's going to just take some time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Stewardship is one of the words that I love most, actually. That was the key word and the theme of the first event we ever did at Scholars of Finance. No way. Yeah. The word that stewardship was the theme for the event and I think continues to be the soul of the organization today. Kara, we only have a couple minutes left. I would love to move us into rapid fire. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions. Sound good? Yes. Let's do it. All right. First, easy one. What are two or three of the best books you've ever read or have recently read? whether sustainability or across any topics, two to three books you'd recommend anyone read who's listening. Okay, that's hard. I'm going to go with the most recent book I read was 4,000 Weeks, which was really good by Oliver Berkman. 
a lot of good food for thought. And then the book I read before that was Investing in the Era of Climate Change by Bruce Usher, who was a professor so knowledgeable at Columbia Business School, which is where I did my part-time executive MBA. It's an awesome read. It gives you a really good overview of what it will take to really transform the economy and our energy systems. Excellent. I'm excited to add them both to my personal reading list. What is one of the most important lessons that you've learned in your career that have helped you be successful and continue to be successful that you would share with any of our mid-career professionals listening right now? Oh, that's a hard one. The first is my career progression has had a lot of steep learning curves, has been one constant. I moved from investment banking, then I was in investor relations. When I was in investor relations, I had to know what rehypothecation of collateral was in the same day that I had to you know, learn an ESG topic. And then when I stepped into this seat, I really had to understand the energy system. I don't come from that background. And so a lot of learning curves has been one of the constants. And I think what I have tried to do, and I've been, been very fortunate to be at a place like Goldman, where people are always so happy and eager to help, is just learn. Like, be very humble, be very open and honest about what I know and what I don't know. And I think that can actually help you in spades because when people feel that openness and willingness to learn, then they'll throw it more at you. I would just encourage folks, like, be very open because the more it's like anything in life, the more open you are to feedback, the more open you are to learning, the more that people are willing to give and invest in you. The second is a little bit more personal. I had three maternity leaves in six years during my career here. And those were, you know, amazing, beautiful times. They were also challenges kind of having to come back you know, to the office, to the work, very significant shifts in lifestyle during those periods. You know, what I took from those experiences were kind of tried to give myself a nugget every time and really push myself of what's something I want to do a little bit different. It's kind of an excuse to have like a little bit of a restart. And, and I've changed kind of little things along the way, but prioritization was one big thing when I came back from my first maternity leave. And I think the advice in that kind of for anyone doesn't need to be because of maternity leave or children, right? Use anything to take a step back. It could be a weekend. It could be a week. It could be a vacation, but really do that and figure out what are those things that you want to change. You don't wait. You don't need to take a step back in your career to do that because actually you can really do a lot, you know, day to day and just improving your kind of quality of life and the energy that you bring and how you can continue to invest in relationships at work and at home and in personal life. So I think those are probably the two, the two biggest that I come back to a lot. Absolutely. Excellent pieces of advice. Hey, you know, we have holiday weekends coming up. We have 4th of July coming up, plenty of excuses to, to step away and think strategically. Last question, Kara. You have been generous with your time you've given to Scholars of Finance, meeting with me and the team. Here you are on our podcast, have offered to speak to our students and make introductions. What stood out to you about our organization and mission, and why would you encourage others to support our work? I mean, I absolutely love the mission, Ross. I think our first conversation was a few years ago, and you really have had the incredible kind of pace and rise to the organization. I think you're at like almost 3,000 or more students in terms of the impact that you're having. And I think it's so critical. I mean, ultimately, I think about both finance, it's inter- interesting intersection where I said finance and sustainability, the Venn diagram especially, but really both of those. And what you really need is talented folks 
high integrity, diversity of perspectives. I think this is something I know is really important to you and you've driven across your organization. Diversity of perspective is huge in the ability. This is ultimately about you know, solving challenges. And so I think the organization is really special, really unique. No one's doing what you're doing and really honored just to be, to be a small part of it. Thanks, Kara. We're very grateful to have you be a part of it. It means a lot. Thank you so much for your time today, given your comments on prioritizing. We're so grateful you prioritized the podcast today, sharing your insights with our audience and our community. And we'll have to have you on again in the future. There's so much, there's so much more ground to cover. Thank you. This was so great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.